Lord God, our Father, thank you for the Sabbath day, this time for us to come apart and be in your presence. This afternoon, Lord, as we learn practical methods for reaching the W3s, the wealthy, the worldly, and the well-educated, Lord, I pray that you would put upon each and every one of our hearts to use these methods, to engage with this material, and to come away equipped to have spiritual conversations with anyone we meet. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this afternoon, we're going to continue uh, this blessed weekend. The, The two testimony segments have now been completed. This morning in the Sabbath school, for those of you who were here, we had part one of this witnessing, uh, witnessing uh, seminar in which we went through the Bible and the spirit of prophecy about all of the guidance and exhortation and, admi- and admonition about how we need to be sharing our faith with what I call the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, or the W3s. What we're going to do this afternoon is we're going to talk about practical methods tactical, tangible things that you can apply immediately to anyone uh, who is in the W3s or, or, or frankly anybody at all in sharing your faith and sharing the gospel. So that's what we're going to do this afternoon for the next uh, hour or so. I would invite you to be very um, interactive here. Uh, I feel kind of funny being up here in front, but I think this is needed for the video soundtrack feed. But I would love for this to be more question and answer driven. I've got a few slides to structure the conversation, and we'll go through those. But I would invite you at any time to raise your hand and ask questions. And as I explained this morning, for those of you who are here, when you ask a question, I'll either answer it immediately or I'll ask you to hold it until a later part of the presentation, if that's where we're headed. Or I may ask you to come and discuss that with me offline. But in any case, I would really appreciate your, your interest, your engagement, and the dialogue over this, uh, this topic. Because really the idea here is for you to come away with very practical, uh, tangible methods that you can apply immediately And so as we start, I'd like to ask you a question, and that is, have you, do you know anyone in your life, in your sphere of influence, who you would consider a W3, or someone who is wealthy, worldly, and well-educated? Anyone? Okay. Just about everyone here does. And have you ever tried to talk to that person about spiritual things or faith? Has anyone ever tried to do that? Okay, quite a few, quite a few. A smaller number, but quite a few. For those of you who have tried, did you find that difficult or easy? Both difficult and easy? For different people or at the same time? Different people. Okay, so when it's difficult, why is it difficult? They don't seem ready. They're Sure, okay, so it's easy to have these conversations when someone is ready for them, but it's difficult when they're not ready. It's a great point, and one we're going to hit very directly here. Other comments about the challenges of sharing spiritual things with this specific demographic? 
Yes. Sure, it can be challenging because where they come from might be very different from where you're coming from. Um, it really is, I, I mentioned this morning, about the culture and language of W3s. It actually is a, a culture. It's a language. It's a people group. Some people go and try to reach the, um, the Aborigines in Australia. Some people go and try to reach the Eskimo peoples of the far north. Others go to China or to Indonesia or whatever people group. And the W3s are every bit as much of a people group as one of those groups because they do have their own culture. They have their own language. They might still be speaking English, but it sounds very different. And what they mean can be very different. And the way that they take in information and process information is very different. And so it really, it is, that is a challenge. That is a challenge. It's as if you went to China to try to be an evangelist, but you don't speak Chinese. You wouldn't get very far. And so that's, that's a great point. Thank you. So sounds like those, those are some of the challenges. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to share with you some methods that the Lord has taught me over time and have made being a witness in my life, being a witness as easy and as natural as talking about the weather. Does that sound attractive to you? Would you like to be able to talk about your faith with W3s in such a way where it feels just as easy and natural as asking about the weather? I'm going to share with you methods that do just that. I'm also going to share with you methods that have allowed me, by God's grace, to have the privilege of having personal Bible studies. I mentioned that this morning. Personal Bible studies with a wide range of people from this W3 segment. And except for the very first Bible study in which I asked the individual if they would be interested in studying with me, subsequently, every person that I've ever studied the Bible with has asked me for Bible studies rather than me having to ask them. And so I'm going to share with you ways that... Doesn't, does that sound attractive and interesting to you? Would you like to be in a position where W3s in your sphere of influence are ask, actually asking you to study with them rather than you having to put them in a headlock and try to get them to study with you. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? And so that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. First question I'd like to pose is when you are trying to be a witness, are you actually being a witness or are you just witnessing? And I'd pose this question... What are these people doing up here? That's right. They're playing basketball. They're, um, they're, uh, it's a pickup game in the, in the park somewhere. They're playing basketball. Now, this person here, what is he doing? I'm sorry? Well, he is advertising, but what is he physically doing? He is playing basketball too, right? Now, is there a difference between what LeBron is doing and what these guys are doing over here? What's the difference? Night and day. Night and day, that's for sure. That's for sure. But the witness that I would want to direct us to is that while these people are playing basketball, LeBron is a basketball player. 
Do you see that difference? Do you hear that difference? The kids on the left are playing basketball, but LeBron is a basketball player. And the difference is that LeBron never stops being a basketball player. But the kids on the left, they play basketball and then they stop. And when they stop, they're no longer anything to do with basketball. Well, the point is that we should not be witnessing. We should be witnesses. Because being a witness is something you are. It's who you are. It doesn't turn off and then turn on, turn on and then turn off. Whereas witnessing is an activity that you do and then you stop. And then maybe you do some more and then you stop. We need to be witnesses, not witnessing. Does that make sense? That distinction? And I just thought it was so fitting that LeBron says we are all witnesses. So I'd like to share with you the core framework for how I think about being a witness. And I call it a virtuous cycle. It's a, it's a term that is often used when you have a set of self-reinforcing actions or strategies that ultimately uh, feed, its, feed each other and creates momentum. And so let's start with experiencing heart conversion. This is really at the core of it. And in fact, if you don't have this, there's a different seminar that we should be presenting this afternoon. If you're not heart converted, you need to get heart converted. Because that's really where it all started, starts. Think about this. When we talk about being a witness, we're talking about sharing something. Sharing the gospel. Sharing Christ. But you're not able to share something you don't have. I can't, I can't share, if, if you needed some money, I can't share money with you unless I have money. Does that make sense? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And that's why heart conversion is so important. The next thing, once you are heart converted, you start to live a Christ-like life. As you have your morning walk with the Lord, as you steep yourself in His Word, as you walk with the Lord and deepen your relationship with Him, you will start becoming more like Christ. And that's a promise. And so as your heart converted, you start to live a more Christ-like life. That leads to you being able to attract spiritual interests. If you were here this morning, I shared a few anecdotes, and I'll share some more with you later uh, this afternoon. But as you become more like Christ, people will notice. And they will want what you have. And so you'll attract spiritual interests. Some of those spiritual interests will turn into personal Bible studies. This morning we heard from the Spirit of Prophecy that this group is not easily reached through literature. I think those of you who were here this morning remember that. She just hits that head on. That it's not literature, but it's personal efforts that they need. Drawing close with relationship, not casual acquaintance. And so this is, a, this is not a mass-scale manufacturing type of operation. Reaching the W3s is not filling a stadium and baptizing hundreds or thousands of people at the end. It just isn't. And this is not my opinion. This is the spirit of prophecy. It is a one-by-one-by-one one by one handcrafted 
every unique situation, every unique relationship, one at a time type of endeavor. And so some of the spiritual interests you attract over time will become personal Bible studies. As you study the Bible with people, you will, re- you will realize converts. Now, this is a very difficult segment to reach. And as you heard this morning, it takes faith, it takes determination. But God is faithful. And over time, you will realize converts. And as you realize converts, and as you participate and cooperate with the Lord in their conversion experience, it deepens your own heart conversion. And that's where the self-reinforcing mechanism comes to play. So, to, whoa, what happened? Here we go. Okay, so you experience heart conversion. You live a Christ-like life. You attract spiritual interests, some of whom become Bible studies. And then some of those people you study with, not all, but some, will also become converted. And as you cooperate in their conversion, it'll deepen your own heart conversion. And this is the plan that the Lord had with us. Any questions about this framework? No? All right, well, if you have questions, keep them coming. So we'll talk about each one. Let's start with heart conversion. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to our Lord Jesus Christ by night. And does anyone remember what they talked about? Come on, I know most of you remember what they talked about. How to be born again. again. Thank you, brother-in-law. He's my straight man. In case... In case I need a a lifeline, I go to uh, my brother, Paul Yim. So Nicodemus and Jesus talk about how to be born again. And Jesus says, in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again of the spirit. Do do we all remember that? Now in Acts, it reads that the spirit will make us a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so if you do the simple math on that, you quickly realize that if you are heart converted, if you are born again, you will be a witness. Do you see that relationship that the Bible sets up? If you are heart converted, you will be a witness. Well, we also know from the laws of logic that the contra- if, if something is true, then the contrapositive of that is true. In other words, if A, then B, if that's true, then if not B, then not A. That is also true. So, if you are heart converted, you will be a witness, is true, which we've seen from the Bible that it is. Then, if you are not a witness, then you are not heart converted. Let me say that again. If being heart converted means that you will be a witness, which is what the Bible says, that means that if you are not a witness, you are not heart converted. And so your witness is the critical barometer of your salvation. Let me let that sink in. Your witness is the critical barometer, the acid test 
of your salvation. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm in a lot of trouble. And if that's what you're thinking to yourself, then praise the Lord that you were here to hear this. Because now you know. And once you've recognized that you're not heart converted, then there are things that you can do in order to become heart converted by giving your life to Christ. Any questions? Have I stunned you into silence? Yes, ma'am. That's a good question. That's a good question. And I think that um, everything has to start with a desire to witness. You have to have the desire before you can actually be a witness. And what we'll talk about today is how you can actuate that desire into reality. Um, So what I would say is, praise the Lord. For anyone who has a desire to witness, praise the Lord. And yet... And I'm not a theologian. I'm an MBA and a a former cellist. So um, maybe I'm going out on a limb here. But what I would say is, if you have a desire to witness, which never actually comes to fruition, I won't go so far as to say you're not heart converted, but I think there's some questions that you would need to ask yourself about why that is. Thank you for that question. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Well, I think you could identify... So the question was, if you're going around the wheel, but you don't quite get all the way to the top, back, you know, back up and around, what does that mean? And I actually think it could mean a lot of different things depending on which node you're stuck at and why you're stuck there. So, for example... Where I lost my picture. Oh. All right. So, for example, let's say your experience, your heart converted... And you're living a Christ, you're walking with the Lord, uh, but for some reason you're not having conversations with people. Well, it could be because you don't know anybody. That was a joke. But actually, <laughs> if, if you don't know anybody or you don't get out much, then perhaps that's the problem. So you need to actually go out and meet more people. Or maybe a variation of that, maybe the only people you know are other Adventists. Maybe the only people you know are other Adventists, so there's no one around to have these kinds of conversations with. Although, as I shared with you this morning, there are plenty of congenital Christians amongst our ranks. But, so you can see, there could be different explanations of what's going on depending on which node of that framework we're talking about. So, but thank you for that question. All right, well, let's keep going, but please raise your hand anytime with questions. Now, why is heart conversion so, uh, so important? Well, the first one is that it gives you confidence. We live in a society, especially enabled by social media and things like that, of recommending things. And you can see up there icons of things like Yelp and Twitter and, and Facebook. We're always recommending things. We're passing things along. We're sharing things. We're clicking like. Now, has anyone made a recommendation to someone in your life? 
Okay. Only about half of us have ever recommended anything to anyone. I guess the other half are receiving the recommendations. Why do you recommend, just at the very base level, this is not a trick question, why do you recommend something? Because it worked for you. That's right. Because it worked for you and because you believe that based on what you know of that person, it would add value to them. That's why you recommend something. And heart conversion gives you that confidence. Because if you're heart converted, you've lived and experienced the abundant life in Christ. And so, because it's worked for you, you can pass it along and recommend it to someone else. But, if you haven't had that experience, well, then you have nothing to recommend. How could I recommend a restaurant that I've never been to? I could tell you, I've heard it's really good, but is that as powerful as saying, I went there myself and it was the best meal I ever had? Of course not. Do you see the difference? And so that's one of the reasons why heart conversion is so important. And once you're heart converted, you will have the boldness of this young woman up on the screen. I don't know what she's saying, but she looks very confident. <laughs> the other thing that heart conversion does is that it provokes a sense of urgency. The picture up here, up here of course, is there's a gentleman who is tied down on the railroad tracks, a young woman who's desperately trying to untie him, and there's a freight train barreling down on them. Well, as you heard this morning, that is exactly the situation we're in. Spirit of Prophecy talks about how the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, frankly, everyone, this whole world, outside of Christ, we are in mortal danger. It's like uh, one of the metaphors that uh, Ellen White used was rushing over a precipice to one's death. And so this picture of the freight train barreling down on this, this gentleman is actually quite apt for the situation anyone finds themselves in when they are apart from Christ. Amen? Do you agree with that? And so when your heart converted, when you realize this, when you understand this, then you'll have a sense of urgency to untie that person from off those railroad tracks, to share the gospel with them. You'll have that urgency. Taken another way, how much would you have to hate someone not to tell them about the gospel if you knew it to be true? How much would I have to hate my coworker not to tell that individual that this world is coming to an end, that Jesus Christ is the only way to life? Who do you hate in your sphere of influence so much that you would willingly and knowingly and intentionally withhold that information from them? Well, if you're heart converted, you know the truth of that statement. And that gives you a sense of urgency. But if you don't have that sense of urgency, it is perhaps because you are not heart converted. So that's heart conversion. Let's now talk about living a Christ-like life. And I shared a bit about this with you this morning, and I want to reiterate that as you walk with the Lord, Christ will change you. 
Christ is faithful. He will change you if you only allow the Holy Spirit to do his sanctifying work in your life. And so I've just enumerated up here a few different ways that we can walk with the Lord. The first one is develop a daily devotional walk with him. The second is as you do that, you gain character development and victory over sin. You also pray for others in your life and that changes you. And then you serve. You serve in your church and your community. And that's another way that God, another thing that God uses to change us. And let's talk about each one of these things. The first thing I would have to say about devotionals is have them. I did not have devotionals before. And if I believe the statistics that I read, there is some vast majority of people even in our church who do not have a daily devotional walk with the Lord. I won't ask you to raise your hands here. But if you're not, I would implore you to deeply consider why that is not the case. With respect to daily devotionals, prayer is the A, if not the key ingredient prayer. And as I I shared with you this morning, uh, I went from praying not at all to praying for 20, 30, or more minutes on a daily basis. Prayer is when you can praise God, you learn how to praise God, when you learn how to be thankful to God. God uses that to teach us. And then confessing sin and we'll, we'll get to all that a little bit later. But prayer is the first ingredient. The Word, Scripture, the Bible. That is the other critical ingredient. We must be spending time in the Word. And I've put an icon here for Scripture Typer. Anyone ever heard of Scripture Typer? Wow. I think about 10 people raised their hands. You guys need to get on top of this. You guys need to get on top of this. I don't own Scripture Typer, by the way. I have nothing to do with it other than I'm a user. It is an app for your iPhone or Android in which you can load Bible verses that you want to learn. And then it has, uh, it basically, it's a, it's a Scripture memorization trainer. It tells me every day which Scriptures are due for me to review. I can download from all different kinds of versions. It's a really, really wonderful tool. And I can't recommend it to you strongly enough. If you've got Pandora, Spotify, Google Maps, or any other app on there and you don't have Scripture Typer, you are missing an essential app for your phone. Because of Scripture Typer, I've got... I'll mess up the exact number, but I've probably got about 150 different verses under my belt after about a year of use. Not to say I could just produce them on demand right now, but some of them I could, and others are a little bit more in the, um, uh, the deep storage, but they're there. <laughs> we can find them. They're in the archives. But we need to be memorizing Scripture. We need to be hiding the word in our hearts that we might not sin against God. 
and so that we can have that right word to speak in that right time. So, prayer, the word of God. The last thing I'll say here is you need to devote time to it. And the the picture up on the screen is for P90X3. Does anyone anyone use P90X or that kind of thing? Yes? Wonderful. I see one hand in the back. As I told you this morning, I spent 10 years on some combination of crutches, canes, and pain medication. But about two years ago, the Lord freed me from that. And I'm so thankful. And after that point, one of the things that the Lord has allowed me to do is work out six days a week using P90X, and in this case, P90X3, and other things. In fact, I just got, apparently there's a new one out from um, Insanity called Insanity Max 30. And it is insane. But the reason why I got it was because they have a new feature called a modifier track. No impact. So even someone with two hip replacements, like myself, can now take advantage of that kind of exercise. But, one, but Tony Horton, who is the, um, he's the... He's the fellow who is the trainer for P90X, that series. He came out with P90X3. And the big thing about P90X3 is that it's, every workout is 30 minutes. In the original, some of the workouts were 50 minutes, 60 minutes. There's one that was even 90 minutes. And so you, yeah, if you have to take that much time out, you can make excuses for yourself. Let's say, oh, I don't have time for that. P90X3, every workout is 30 minutes. And so one of the things that Tony Horton always says is no excuses. Just push play. And you just get up and you just do it, even when you don't want to. And I would say the same thing about... The spiritual walk, your daily walk with the Lord. I don't get up every morning. There have been times in my devotional time when I'd be falling asleep in the middle of my prayer because I'm just so tired. I'm sure many of you might have had that experience. But the Lord still blesses. The Lord still blesses. And you just got to show up. You just got to do it, especially when you don't want to. And over time, It becomes something that you don't want to miss. It becomes something that you're going to be willing to get up at 4.30 a.m. so you can make sure you get everything in. And so that's the way that our spiritual walk with the Lord needs to be. You need to be praying. You need to be in the Word, preferably memorizing the Word. And it needs to be consistent. It needs to be consistent. And that's how God changes us. And if you're not doing that, you're not allowing God to change you. Sometimes I, I, I'm, a, I'm an elder at my church, and, and ever since I started speaking with, with um, groups like this, I'll get questions like, why isn't God doing such and such in my life? Why do I feel so distant from God? Why? And I get these kinds of questions. The first question I'll always ask them is, how is your devotional life? And then the person always kind of puts their head down and says something like, well, it's not what it should be. Without fail, every single time. And then I turn the question back on themselves. Because the question they're asking is, why isn't God helping me in X, Y, Z way? Really the question is, is, 
given that you're not walking with the Lord, why are you surprised? Frankly, if God helps you when you're not walking with him, that's a true miracle. That's the grace of God, which is a miracle. That's the question that people should be asking is, wow, I'm not walking with him at all, yet I've got my health, I've got my every breath that I take, I've got blessings and prosperity. How is this happening? That is a real question. The question of, why is God not helping me in such and such a way when I'm not walking with him? That's kind of obvious. Now, I'm not saying that God is intentionally trying to do something in each of these cases, but the point I'm trying to make is we need to be walking with the Lord. And it's sort of obvious why we should be, yet it's something that we never do or often do. And I'm pointing at myself. Until six years ago, I had no clue about this stuff. Not that I didn't know that I should have devotionals, but I was a congenital Christian. And so that's, that's our devotional life. Any questions about that? Comments? No? Okay. Character development and victory over sin. Yes, Kyle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great question um, because it's we're all so susceptible to that, yeah. myself included. There are a few things I would say. One is I think prayer is that critical ingredient because your life changes. You have experiences, you meet people, people around you have circumstances, you face new challenges. Your life is always changing. Whenever you ask someone what's new and they say nothing, you know they're lying to you. Because there's always something new. And if your prayers are actively engaged with your life, I think that's one way that it, it stays fresh. It stays fresh because you are praying about the things that are happening to you and to others in your sphere of influence. And if that's not changing, then it means you're not really engaged with your prayer life because otherwise your prayers would be dynamic rather than static. So I, I think prayer and having your prayer be really relevant to what's going on in your life is a huge piece of it. The other thing I would say is when it comes to your scripture or your, the the devotional material, whatever you're reading, I think changing it up, changing it up at times. You know, maybe you're reading it out of, straight out of the scripture uh, for some period of time. And then maybe there's a devotional book you might use. Or maybe you would go to the uh, Conflict of the Ages series. Just keeping things changing. Going back to Tony Horton, P90X, one of the principles that he espouses in training people is called muscle confusion. The idea is that any muscle, when you work it the same way for a long time, it gets acclimatized or accustomed to that kind of stress you're putting on the muscle and it's, you plateau. And so you always need to change it up and add different exercises and different angles and different approaches 
to confuse, he calls it muscle confusion, to confuse your muscles so that they're always having to react and respond and therefore grow and build based on the stimulus you're giving it through your exercise. So I would say a similar thing with your devotional life. Keep it fresh. Keep it different. Try different things. Um, I, I'd say those, two, those are two things that come off the top of my head. Yeah. But you're right. It is a risk. I find um, one of the risks in my life, frankly, that I'm struggling with is that, as I, like I said, I'm, I'm elder at my church. We don't have a pastor right now, so I'm preaching a lot. I have two regular Bible studies that I'm giving to coworkers per, you know, at, you know, weekly is the intent, but it ends up being not quite weekly, but regular. Uh, and then I, I go and I do presentations with groups like we're here today. It seems that I'm always preparing for something. And when you're always preparing for something, sometimes you don't have the time to take a step back and just be in the word. To just be in the Word. It's like the difference between, if any of you are in a field that has research and development, you know, there's applied R&D, and then there's pure research. Are you familiar with that distinction? Applied R&D is, well, how do we make this gadget? How do we make it better, faster, cheaper? Pure research is, how do we just expand the knowledge of this particular field not knowing necessarily how it will be applied. Any healthy R&D program needs both. And sometimes I feel like I'm always doing applied devotionals and not doing pure, open-ended devotionals. And that's something that I'm struggling with just from a time perspective. But I think that's another example of this idea of kind of checking the box. Ultimately, I would say, however, checking the box is better than not showing up. It really is. And so if you feel like you're in a rut with your devotionals, but you're still having devotionals, then praise the Lord. And ask him how, you can, how he can revitalize your devotional life. You're, you're, you're at least showing up. And that is at least 80% of it. Thank you for that question. A- any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, so the question is, is what happens when your prayer life becomes routine and a check-the-box exercise? What I would say to that is you're not thinking hard enough. It kind of goes back to that comment earlier about how life changes, and so your prayer life should change because you should be praying about the people, places, and things in your life. And so, really, the natural thing should be that your prayers... So, for example, if I have a meeting, if I have a meeting with a managing director or the CEO coming up, well, I should be praying about that. Now, once that's over, I don't need to pray about that any, anymore, but there might be something else going on that I need to pray about. And so if, if your prayer life is in tune with the rhythm of your daily life, then it won't be static. So, that, so if, if your prayer life is static, it's because you're not thinking hard enough. You're not thinking through the nooks and crannies of your life. 
How about this? Um, prayer about... Uh, in fact, that's, that's the next slide. So maybe I should go there. Prayer over victory over sin. I used to take the master services approach to master services agreement approach to confession. Does anyone in the legal field or have any experience with a master services agreement? No? Well, a master services agreement is when two organizations do a lot of business together, a lot of transactions, they don't want to have a contract for every single interaction. And so what they put in place is a master services agreement, which governs at an overall level 90% of the transactions that they will have. And then they might need to do a one-off contract for something special. And so a master services agreement approach to confession sounds a little something like this. Dear God, forgive me for my sins. Period. You know what they are. I know what they are. Let's just call it good. You see what I mean? We're just saying a blanket, generic, forgive me for my sins. It's a master services agreement approach to confession. By contrast, we need to be confessing specific sins. So how to keep your prayer fresh? When I'm in my prayer posture in the morning, I am thinking about the last 24 hours since I was last there. And I'm thinking about Lord, I shouldn't have said that. I could have said that in a different way. Lord, I shouldn't have had that thought. That was not right of me. Lord, I could have done that differently. Or I shouldn't have done that at all. Spending time, concentrated time in prayer thinking, replaying the last 24 hours and identifying specific things that you did, said, thought that the Holy Spirit can impress upon you. That wasn't, that wasn't right. That wasn't right, David. And then I can confess that. And so the things that we sin on a day-to-day basis change. And so again, if your prayer is not changing, it's because you're not engaged with your life. You're not engaging your prayer with your life. Does that make sense? And so that's why if our prayer life is stagnant, it's because we're not thinking hard enough. We're not thinking hard enough. And so be specific. And this has two purposes. You heard them perhaps in my testimony this morning. It makes us face once more why we need Jesus. Because I can't keep my patience in check at times. Because when my son talks to me sometimes about something he's interested in, I'm too busy checking my email. And Lord, I need to confess that before you. And teach me, Lord, how to delight in the things that delight the hearts of my children. And that's just one example, but specific things. It it impresses upon us that we need Jesus, but it also shows us what things are going away. There are literally things in my life which I used to have real problems with and I no longer have problems with. Praise the Lord. 
And there are things in my life which are still problems. They're getting better. But they're still problems. And so it teaches me more about who I am. And it helps me to focus in on those things in my life which are just, they're in there by the roots. And I give permission to the Lord every morning to pull them out. So it's really important, I can't emphasize enough, specificity in your confessional life. Amen. The other thing I would say is this is not, this should not be a checkbox legalistic endeavor. Keep calm and give it to God. Every positive lifestyle change, every positive character development, every victory over sin I've ever had in my life has not been because of my willpower. It's because I've given it to the Lord. I'll give you some examples. One is, I did not grow up a vegetarian and I've only been vegetarian for the last two years. I was heart converted six years ago. So if you do the math, I didn't instantaneously become a vegetarian. Furthermore, I've tried being a vegetarian before. In, in fact, even a vegan. In fact, I even attended the 18-day program at Weimar once, and I spent the, the next year after I was there trying to be a vegan. And I lasted for about six months. And I said, well, you know, this vegan thing's too hard because if you eat in a cafeteria or a restaurant or if you're on a business trip... I mean, unless you control every morsel of food that goes into your body, you can't do what they recommend to you. So then for the next six months, I became um, you know, vegetarian where I would eat dairy. And then I became pizza man. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of vegetarians out, out in the world, in our church, who really aren't any healthier than anybody else. it's really true. It's true. Um, and I became pizza man. And so after that, after, so I stuck it out. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it a year. I'm going to get to one year and then I'm going to stop. And that's what I did. I said, my, just my stubbornness said, okay, I can do this for one year. Then I stopped. Well, um, a couple years after that, uh, the Lord started working on my heart. And sometimes people ask me, how did you get off your pain medication? And why is it that you, can, you went from being, walking with a cane to being able to do Insanity Max 30? Which is, frankly, a miracle. It's a miracle. And I tell them first, the first thing I tell them is, well, it's really pain, uh, a prayer and patience. And I truly believe that. Then the second thing I tell them is, you know, the only other tactical thing that I can point to is that I started drinking green smoothies. Because I was at ASI a couple years ago, and I was actually talking to my brother, Paul Yim, and I was really interested in this juicing thing. Juicing is really popular. I thought, I asked him, you know, I'm kind of interested in juicing, but I think I'd get hungry all the time. And he says to me, well, why don't you just do smoothies instead? Because the only difference is the fiber, and that'll help you stay full. And I thought, wow. <laughs> and so I started doing green smoothies. And within about two or three or four months after that, my hips started feeling better. Now, I lost 10 pounds just from making that one change. 
And I'm sure that could have a difference. But as, as I started doing the green smoothies, I still wasn't vegetarian yet. But the Lord was kind of putting it upon my heart, you know, David, you could go the next step here. And so finally, I said to him in my prayer life, I said, God, you know I've tried to be a vegetarian before. So if you want me to change my diet, you need to do it. I cannot do it. I've proven that to myself over and over. So if you want me to change my diet, you change it. And that was my prayer. And I've been vegetarian for over two years now. I don't even have cravings for it. I knew that something deep and profound had changed when I had the opportunity to go to Los Angeles on business. And if you know anything about Los Angeles, you know that it is the epicenter of Korean barbecue. <laughs> and I loved Korean barbecue. I really did. And so I was on business in Los Angeles. I had uh, means, motive, and opportunity to go get some kalbi. I knew exactly what place I would go to, Chosun Kalbi. I knew exactly where I would go. But when it came time for dinner, and I was by myself too, I didn't have to drag someone along who maybe wasn't into it. But when it came time for dinner, I looked at my watch and I thought, where should I go for dinner? Should I go get some kalbi? And I had no desire for it. No craving. It was bizarre. <laughs> and at that point, I knew something really profound had happened in my life. So I went to go uh, get sundubu instead. <laughs> Vegetarian sundubu, of course. That's just a small example. I could enumerate more examples if we had time. But every change in my life, every positive lifestyle change, every character development area that has improved has not come because I just reason myself and willpower myself through it. It's because in my prayer posture, I give it to the Lord and I say, if you want me to do this, you need to change it. And God is faithful. Praying for others. We talked a little bit about this. Of course, in the middle of this slide is my family. And of course, everyone pay, prays for their family. But then around, around all these other pictures, you have my, my church family up here. You have my son's karate teacher over here. You have your classmates and professors over here. You have your coworkers over here. You have your neighborhood over here. And you even have political, government, you know, the world to pray for. There are so many people, places, and things that we could be praying and should be praying for. There is no shortage. It's no wonder that Jesus could pray all night. He had the burden of the entire world upon him. Honestly, there are times when it's not that I run out of things to pray for and that's why I stop. I just don't have any more time. I've got to get to work. And that's why I stop. There are so many people, places, and things to pray for. Think about intercessory prayer. Think about your neighbors. Think about your coworkers. Think about your classmates. If you don't know something that you could be praying for them about, that probably says something about the level of engagement you have in their lives. That's why service to others, that's why relationships and having these deep relationships with others where you're really interested in their lives, 
It's part of our walk with the Lord. Because you know that that friend is struggling with something, then you can pray for them. You know that family member is struggling with something. You can pray for them. I've told co-workers that I will pray for them. And now some of my co-workers, they know that I'm a, I'm a, a praying man. And they'll tell me that they'll pray for me too. But praying for others is critical to your walk with the Lord and victory over sin and character development. And then serving. Serving others. And this is very important because it becomes fodder for what we're going to go into next, which is spiritual conversations. But if you're not doing things in your life for the Lord or that are religious or, 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 I should say, spiritually oriented, spiritually minded, then you won't have anything to share with others. You won't have anything to say to others. Obviously, service is valuable inherently because you are serving others and improving their lives spiritually, physically, in all all different kinds of ways. But it is also fodder for spiritual conversations. And we'll talk about that next. Before we go on, any questions about heart conversion, uh, walking with the Lord, um, victory over sin, character development, these areas? Any questions? Comments, observations? Yes, sir. When you uh, confess your sins, do you like, think about um, Jesus at Gethsemane and at the cross and just the sanctuary services? Do you like, bring those into play and pray about that stuff? Well, certainly the reason why I'm confessing is because I understand that all of that has been done on our behalf. I'm not sure if I explicitly make mention of Gethsemane, for example, um, on a routine basis in my prayers. Is that what you mean? More like, sometimes when I, when I confess sin, I just think about the sanctuary service and what he was like God. Yeah. Just, just take, I don't say it, but I just think about it. Well, the, um, the, it's, a, it's a wonderful point. So the point is bringing our knowledge and understanding of the sanctuary service and the Christ sacrifice. I mean, that's really why we confess. That's why we can confess, and that's why we can have forgiveness. So it is that, that's why that understanding is so important. Um, you know, I'll share with you, I was studying, I, you know, I, like I said, I have these Bible studies, and one gentleman who I study with is an atheist. And I had a study with him on the sanctuary. And I talked about the two chambers, and I talked about the articles of furniture and the meaning behind all of them. And, um, and I said... Um, so when, when, I, when I'd kind of gone through all that, he said, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I uh, said to him, yeah, so it's kind of like a, a role play enactment object lesson for the children of Israel. And he says, you know what? That makes perfect sense why God would do that. And I said, oh, why? Why is that? Why, why does an atheist think that it would make perfect sense for God to create a sanctuary and services around the sanctuary as an object lesson? And he says to me, Well, because they had been slaves for 400 years. Who knows if they were even literate? This is an atheist. But when we explain our message, it clicks. We have the strongest message out there. I have no fear today of engaging with anybody on spiritual topics. Not that I know all the answers. But if you know how to talk about things, it's, it's just know what you know, know what you don't know, don't get those confused, and know how to talk about those things. 
And you can be bold. And so, that's right. Those are the sanctuary and Christ's sacrifice. Of course, that is at the core of why we confess sin. All right, anything else? All right, we'll, we'll keep going. Now let's talk about attracting spiritual interests. What is this picture I have up on the screen? Fly fishing, thank you. Thank you, fly fishing. And what's different about fly fishing than other kinds of fishing? Sorry? Someone raise your hand and tell us. No fly fishers in this? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you need to have a lot of information and knowledge about that environment. That's right. And what's different about casting and reeling? Sorry? Yeah, you're trying to attract the fish. But one of the things as a, as a layman, I, I'm not a fly fisher, but I like this picture and I like the metaphor, is fly fishers are always casting and then pulling back. And then casting and pulling back. And then casting and pulling back. But if you're doing traditional fishing with a bobber and a weight, you just cast it out and you wait. Well, one of the key principles or methods of attracting spiritual interest is that you always have to be casting. You always have to be casting and you're looking for hungry fish when you talk about who's ready and who's not ready. With the W3s, you heard this morning, uh, Ellen White says that you can't force them into the boat. You have to draw them, out, draw them in, attract them. You need to find hungry fish. If there's a fish that's not hungry, they're just going to swim away and just keep casting and wait for them to come back. This is in contrast to, what is this? This is industrialized net fishing. Industrialized net fishing, where they cast a net, they drag it through the ocean, and then they pull up whatever is found in there by force. This is not what we're doing. When we're sharing the gospel, we are fly fishing. We're looking for hungry fish, and we're casting all the time to find them. We are not industrialized net fishing where we're trying to force people into the boat. Amen? Amen. Does that make sense? Another metaphor. What is this child doing? Picking apples, right? Picking apples. What this child is not doing is taking a tractor harvester, going down the line of apple trees and forcing all the apples into the bin. Now, when you are picking apples one at a time, why do you do that? Why, was it, why would it be better to pick apples one at a time? Because you know they're ripe. Right? Because you can look at it, you can smell it, you can tug gently at it, and see if it's ripe. If you tug at a piece of fruit and it's ripe, it'll just fall off in your hand. But if you tug at it and it's not ripe yet, but you yank it off anyway by force, what will happen to that fruit? It dies, and it never ripens, and it's not good for anything except to be thrown out. We don't want to do that. We want to be walking through the orchard looking for ripe fruit. Those are the people who are ready to hear the message. That's why, of all these people I've been able to study with, 
except for the first one, they all asked me to study with them because they were ripe, they were interested, and I had engaged with them in a set of spiritual conversations that led them to a point where they thought they'd like to talk with me more about spiritual matters. There was one gentleman who I studied with for some time. We don't study currently, but there was one gentleman who I studied with for some time, very accomplished, top MBA, uh, rising star at our firm. And we had had a number of spiritual conversations. He has an evangelical background. And the key phrase, when you have someone who's interested, someone who's hungry, a hungry fish, the key phrase is, if you'd ever like to talk more about these things, just let me know. Because this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And so at the time I said that to this gentleman, he said, hey, thanks. In other words, not now. But six months later, of course, we were co-workers, colleagues, friends. We continued to have engagement and dialogue and relationship. Six months later, over lunch, just out of the blue, he says, hey, David, remember how we talked about these things and you talked about how you'd be happy to talk more about uh, the Bible and Bible studies? Do you remember that? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, I remember that. And he says to me, you know, I think I'd like to do that. Could we start? So I said, sure, let me check my calendar. That's how, that's how I've been getting Bible studies. They ask me. And if you're living a Christ-like life and they see the power in your life and you're having spiritual conversations, which we'll get to, the hungry fish will come. They'll come to you. And that's what we're talking about. Yes, yes, ma'am. You just keep hanging bait in front of them and waiting wait until they bite. Really. You can't force them. Uh, especially people who've turned away from the church. They're the most difficult because they think they know, but they don't really but they've kind of inoculated themselves against authentic relationship with Christ. And so the key for those people is keep praying for them and keep putting bait in front of them. And hopefully, by the grace of God, one day they'll bite. But you can't force them. And you can't jam it down their throat. And you can't harangue them. But you can... You can nudge them a little bit from time to time. So that's how you do it. You have to wait for them to be hungry. But they'll never get hungry if you don't hang bait in front of them. So it's a give and take. Does that help? Other questions? All right, we'll keep going. All right, so how do you do this? How do you engage in spiritual conversations? First of all, with W3s, you have to build personal credibility. And you have to be purposeful about it. Second, you have to have spiritual experiences on a regular basis because, because that becomes the fodder for your spiritual conversations. And then you can in, naturally engage in these spiritual conversations. When it comes to personal cred- credibility, this is a really important one. 
If you don't have personal credibility with one of these W3s, you're not going to get off of first base. You're not going to even get to first base. Because if, if you're in the office setting or something like that and you're really, you know, you're not very good at your job, you're sort of mediocre at best, why would they listen to you about anything? That's what they're going to think. There are people who I can have conversations with not because, and this is not to glorify myself, I'm just telling you the way it is, which is, there are people who will have a conversation with me because they know that I graduated from Stanford Business School, worked at Bain & Company, and am an executive at Vanguard Group. And that's why they'll give me the time of day. They're not going to give me the time of day if I haven't pursued the other dimensions of my life with excellence. Because they'll say, what are you going to give me? And so that's why we need to build personal credibility. And so we need, for the students here, we need to be excellent. And for people who are in the workplace, we need to be excellent. We need to be the head and not the tail. We need to be like Daniel and Joseph. But, and here's the big but, not for our personal gratification, not for our personal ambition, not for our personal glory, but for the opportunity to engage in spiritual conversations with others and have them listen. And so one of the big changes in my life was I used to pray for success. Well, I used to not pray. But then once I started praying, I started praying for success. And I thought, well, that doesn't quite feel right. And I said, well, Lord, give me success to the extent that you think I can handle it. That seemed like a more pious prayer. But I was still praying for success. And then I started thinking, well, that's not quite right either. And eventually I landed at, Lord, just put me where you want me to be. That's character development. And the Lord is patient. And ambition is one of those. And pride and ambition are one of There are six things in my life which are extremely stubborn. And two of those are pride and ambition. But we have to flip the switch. One of the biggest regrets of my life is that when I spent two years at Stanford Business School, I was not heart converted and I was ashamed of my faith and I really didn't know what I believed. So I spent all of my time trying to straddle between my church life and the world, flying below the radar screen so I wouldn't stick out and be noticed as this weird Christian person. And frankly, it made me a worse person. I couldn't bring my authentic whole self to business school. And one of the biggest regrets of my life is how many people might I have engaged with on a spiritual basis who I've now lost the opportunity to? It's something we're all going to have to face. But my hope for especially the younger among us, if you're in college or in school or newly out of school, don't make that mistake. I wasted 36 years before my heart conversion. There is an ocean of people who passed by me who I could have impacted for the gospel. You don't have to make that mistake. You might have already let 20 years pass, but you've still got 16 on me. Start now. So build personal credibility. Then have spiritual experiences. So 
Let's talk about spiritual conversations. What is a spiritual conversation? I think when people think about this phrase, spiritual conversation, they think it's something really deep, really personal, really heavy. That's not how I'm using that term. Let me give you an example of a spiritual conversation. What are you doing this weekend, David? Oh, well, on Saturday I'm going to church, and then on Sunday I'm going to Costco. I just had a spiritual conversation with someone. Now the hungry fish says, oh, where do you go to church? The fish that's not hungry says, oh yeah, I just went to Costco. (laughs) And now you have more information. You know who's hungry and who's not. And for that person who's hungry, you can have a future conversation. They might say, oh, how are you going to spend the holidays? And I can say, well, there's this conference that my church puts on, and it moves around, and this year it's in Phoenix. So we're going to spend that time between Christmas and New Year in Phoenix at this conference. It's called GYC. And they might say, oh, well, what do you do at that conference if they're hungry? And then I say, they're great speakers, seminars, breakout sessions, and it's a really great time of year to be introspective and try to think about the big picture of life. And I've never had anyone disagree with that. Every single person I've ever said that to says, you know, you're right. That is a really great time of year to... Even even, um, New Age or, you know, different kinds of people, they'll still acknowledge that it's a great time of year to think big and think introspectively. That's a spiritual conversation. And then someone who's even more hungry might say, well... What, what did you guys talk about? What was, um, you know, what, what, what were some of the topics? And then, then you could go on from there. Last year in Orlando, I was able to say, well, you know, I, I'm going to this conference. I'm actually presenting. Oh, really? Well, what are you presenting on? And I say, well, I pre- I'm, I'm going to present on how to live an authentic life, uh, your faith life. How, how can you live your faith life authentically out in the workplace and in your neighborhoods. So in other words, not, not um, siloing away your faith from the rest of your life. That's what I'm going to talk about. And the hungry fish will say, oh, that sounds like a really interesting topic. And so on and so forth. These are spiritual conversations. But if you're not having spiritual experiences, you have nothing to say. It can be as simple as, I went to church, and if the hungry fish says, oh, how was that? Say, well, you know what, we had this guest speaker come in. Um, Oh, what what did he talk about? Well, he talked about some of his experiences as a businessman and bringing faith to work. Oh, that sounds pretty interesting. Spiritual experience, uh, spiritual discussion, spiritual conversation. And when you string enough of these together, all of a sudden you have Bible study interests. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. And that's that's where this spiritual conversation naturally comes in. Because years ago, not too many years ago, when someone asked me what I did over the weekend, I would say, well, I went to Costco. And I wouldn't say anything about church. Even though I spent half my weekend or a quarter of my weekend, depending on how pious you are with church-related activities. 
Frankly, that was an unnatural answer. It would be more natural to actually tell people the answer to their question. And here's the other part of it. How many times have you been in a conversation? Now, this is Southern, so I don't know if the, the answers will be different, but when I was at business school or when I was in the, um, you know, even in the workplace sometimes, you'll, not so much at Vanguard because it's not really that way, but you know, other times, other places I've been, you ask, oh, what'd you do over the weekend? Oh, I went on a pub crawl. Pub crawl, going from bar to bar to bar, drinking a lot of beer. Oh, yeah, we got really wasted. You, you know, that kind of conversation. Has anyone ever been in one of those conversations? And what I'll say is, hey, look, if I have to listen to you talk about your pub crawl, it's only fair that you can listen to me say that I went to church. It's only fair. Besides, you ask the question. If you don't like my answer, don't ask me. You see what I'm saying? These are what spiritual conversations are about. They're the most natural thing you can have. Now, let me say this thing. It wasn't like it was easy from the very beginning. The first time I started doing this, or early on, yeah, I was like, what, what are they going to say when I tell them I went to church? So I would say it. I'd wait. Nothing bad ever happened to me. And then over time, I got more used to it. And now it's the most natural thing I could do. In fact, it would be completely strange if I were to leave out the spiritual elements of my life when someone asks me a simple question, like, how was your weekend? Or where are you going on vacation? Yes, sir, you have a question. Do you ever invite people to your home? And do you ever enjoy the hospitality of your colleagues? Yes. Hospitality is a really important and powerful part of this. You can tell it was my wife prompted this question. Why is that? She's that type. Yeah, yeah. Hospitality, frankly, being a, being a nice person, it's really important. It's really important. And you don't have to get them all the way. In, you know, sometimes when we think about witnessing, we think we have to get them from first conversation into the baptistry within two hours. We put this pressure on ourselves. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. Thank you. So here are, here's a list of questions, all of which have led to spiritual conversations. We talked about the first couple. How was your weekend or what, what's up for your weekend? Any vacation plans? How did you meet your wife? Well, I met her at church in Chicago. That's a spiritual conversation. Then I ask them, oh, how'd you meet your wife? And they say, at a bar. They're always a little bit sheepish about that. Do you still play the cello? Yeah, I do still play the cello. Um, I do a couple things. One is I, I teach my son, so I'm his cello teacher. And two is um, I got connected with this Christian singer-songwriter, and she wrote this really incredible album, a two-part CD album, with all original music that draws from the book of Revelation. And so I play cello on a number of tracks on that album. See, because I had had that act of service and that spiritual experience, I was then able to use that as fodder for a spiritual conversation. Do you see that connection? 
But if I don't do things like that, then I have nothing to say. What do you do for fun? There was one gentleman who, um, we were at a funeral, a funeral for the a father of one of our colleagues at work. And so a lot of work people went to support at the funeral. And funerals and weddings are actually great for having spiritual conversations because you're already in a setting, in a context that sort of evokes thoughts of bigger picture spiritual matters. And so the other good thing about those events is that there's a lot of milling around time and so there's a lot of small talk you have to make. And so this colleague of mine comes up and we're standing together, milling around, and he says to me, so what does David Kim do for fun? And I said to him, well, most of my extracurricular activities have to do either with my family or with my faith, my, my church. And he said, yeah, I love spending time with my family. So what did I just learn? He's not interested in religious things. So I made note of that. And so we talked a little bit about family things to do, going to the park, etc., etc. And then I said to him, so do you have any sort of church you go to or religious background? Because it's only fair, because I had volunteered that. That was a part of the conversation. So it was a very natural question for me to pose. And he said to me, well, no, I'm an atheist. And I said, oh, you're an atheist. Why are you an atheist? a natural question. I I shouldn't assume that I know the answer why he's an atheist. I had no idea what he would say. He said, well, really it's because of, you know, all the science. You know, I believe in science, and so that's why I'm an atheist. I can't believe all this creation stuff, origins. And we started talking about the theory of origins, and I gave him my take on that, which we could go into at some point if we have time, but I don't want to, we've been going for a while, so I want to be respectful. So we're talking about the theory of origins and why I think as a theist, as a believer, I think that that's a very plausible and reasonable scenario. And then a woman sitting to my right, and this is the uh, physics PhD from an Ivy League school who I talked about this morning during Sabbath school. She leans over and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? (laughs) And I said, hey, we're, we're just talking about what we do for fun and theory of origins. He says, oh, wow. Um, well, you know, I'm an atheist. I was surrounded by atheists. <laughs> she said, I'm an atheist. And I said to her, what did I say to her? Why oh, why are you an atheist? And for those of you who weren't there this morning, I'll just recap the story. And she said, well, because I'm a scientist, I believe in science, and also because I'm from China and they're atheists over there, and so I don't believe in God. But then she said something completely unexpected. She said, but I often wish there were a God. I said to her, what did I say to her? Why do you wish there was a God? This is very easy stuff. This is not a trick question. And she said, well, two reasons. One, because I'm a physicist and I can see the universe and how finely calibrated it is. And it's just really hard to explain without a higher power. And this is the physics PhD from an Ivy League school telling me that. I didn't tell her anything. Do you catch that? She was telling me that because she's a hungry fish. 
So that's the first reason. And the second reason is sometimes she feels very lonely in the universe if we're the only ones here. That's a spiritual conversation. It all started from what do you do for fun? Literally. How are you guys settling into the area? Because I was new to Philadelphia. Oh, we're settling in pretty well. Um, you know, one of the things is we've, we finally found a church, so that helps. That's a spiritual conversation. Why do you homeschool? And how do you get socialization? Well, we homeschool for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is, man, it just seems like every day you see another news story about what goes on in our schools today. It just seems really awful. And they often say, yeah, I totally agree with you. And then how do your kids get socialization? Well, you know, they, they have their activities, they have their youth orchestra, they have their ballet class. Oh, and we also have our church and there are kids there. Spiritual conversation. And the hungry fish will latch onto that and the fish who are not hungry will just swim away. And it's okay. This is a doozy. How do you manage your ambition versus your desire for work-life balance? At work, I'm a mentor and coach to a variety of uh, people at my firm. You have a question for me? Can I finish my story first? Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, I mentor a number of people, and in one mentoring conversation, a young woman asked me this question, how do you balance these two things? And I told her a couple of very mundane, secular types of things. Um, you know, I try to be very efficient, blah, 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 blah. Then the third thing I said to her was, but honestly, the most important thing, the most useful and helpful thing in my life in managing my ambition is my prayer life. And I don't know how you feel about that kind of thing, but that's what works for me. And ultimately, that led to a set of conversations that led to us studying the Bible together, personal Bible studies. And she hasn't been baptized yet, but coincidentally, she found a boyfriend who was raised Adventist, but is not practicing currently. And she also asked me for a referral to an Adventist church in the city that she moved to. So God is working. Yes. Yes. Um, let me think. I think the first thing I said was, wow, that's really interesting. You can always use that line. <laughs> it means whatever you want it to mean. That's really interesting. What are some examples? I probably said something like, what are some examples of this finely calibrated universe that you're talking about? Yeah. So you can just build that conversation there. And then I went into the 2300 days. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> but you're building a relationship. And one of the things, it's a really important point. You're building relationships with people. And there are many bases upon which you can have relationships with people. You can have relationships because you're from the same family. You can have relationships because you have the same interests. You can have relationships because you go to the same school. You can have relationships because you enjoy the same hobbies. And now I'm injecting in 
I can have a relationship with you on the basis of the fact that we have spiritual interests that we like to talk about. It's very natural. It's about relationship building. Yeah, and I mean, sister's family is a little bit different, but what, in general, what I would say, this is all about fishing. It's not about the net. And so I just sprinkle into these conversations. It's just you, the more conversations like this you have, the stronger connection you're building on a spiritual basis. And then at some point, if they like what they're hearing, they will ask you to study the Bible with them. And so a lot of the things I do are intended to be a little bit um, I use a lot of humor, but to be a little bit edgy. So here's an example. Uh, Easter is great because the weekend after Easter, everyone asks you, what did you do for Easter? And so what I say is, uh, you know, we, we did go to church, um, but we didn't have a special sunrise ceremony or anything. But, you know, we went to church as usual and, um, you know, uh, celebrated Easter in that way. But, you know... I, one of the things about uh, Easter I was thinking about over the weekend was, um, I can't remember, maybe you know, did the Easter bunny show up in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke? And this is for people who are Christians who have some knowledge of the background of Easter, of course. And everyone thinks that's really funny. I say, and I say it in a joking way. I'm not saying, I'm saying like, yeah, yeah where'd that Easter bunny thing come from? Is that in Luke or Matthew? And you can see I'm being lighthearted, I'm being humorous, but there's a little edge to that. Because I'm trying to make them think about what they just did for Easter. Does that make sense? So that's what I mean by having these purposeful spiritual conversations where you can kind of create a set of interactions that leads them to think differently without telling them you know, telling, jamming, you know, jamming things, something down their throat or whatnot. You're not doing anything like that. Thank you for that question. All right. Whoa. All right, so I think we, you get the idea of spiritual conversations, right? This point, and this is what we're, we're coming in on the close of the end here, but like I said at the beginning, this is, this is a custom work. This is a unique work, person by person. So down in the corner here, there are thousands of people you know. I'm sure your Facebook friends and your LinkedIn connections can tell you how many people you know. Well, of those, because every MBA has to create a two-by-two, two, you can have spiritual conversations. You can have a few of them or many of them, or you can have light conversations or deep conversations. And in these three quadrants, you have hundreds, I've, I literally, I've had hundreds, I probably have a dozen of these kinds of spiritual conversations every week. And I've been doing this for probably going on three years now. So you have hundreds and hundreds of these spiritual conversations, of which 
precious few become actual Bible studies. Because with this segment, again, you're not going to put them in a headlock and take them to your evangelistic series. You're going to draw them out, make them curious, make them interested, make them ask you questions. A few become Bible studies, and then even fewer still become converts. But every soul is precious to the Lord. And like it or not, my experience, spirit of prophecy, I was so happy to see affirms this. This is a one-by-one work, person-by-person work, personal relationships, spiritual conversations that lead to personal Bible studies where you can present the gospel to them because they're going to listen to you because they know you, they respect you, they trust you, and they like you. But if you just give them, and I mean no disrespect to the literature ministries, I think that they're an important work. They've done, they're a tried and true method. But what I will say is every time I've given literature to a wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, whether it's a book, a glow track, a video, it's never worked, and it's always been the end of the conversation. And I, I have some views on why this is, and I think it's because these people are highly skeptical, you know, very accomplished. And so I think there's a couple things. One is I think, frankly, the production value of some of the things that we have off the shelf, they just won't appeal to this segment. So that's what I'll say about that. But the other thing is, even some of the things that I think are well done that I've given to people, they'll, they'll hear lots of assertions, lots of statements, and they're critically going through that as they take it in, and they're asking questions. And here's the thing. As soon as they hear something that they disagree with, they're going to shut down and say, you know what, I can't trust this thing. But... If I'm in a conversation, if I'm in a personal Bible study with you and you have a question, then you can ask me real time and I can give you a plausible answer in real time. And I can break that barrier down so that you don't have a chance to build it back up. And that's why the personal work is so important with W3s. Because they're inquisitive, they're skeptical, they're critical thinkers. And they need someone there to be knocking down the barriers as they set them up. And a static piece of literature can't do that. I mean, it's not the literature's fault, it's just it's not built to do that. People can do that. But that's how this works. It's one person by one person by one person. At this point, I would like to share a brief video that gives you an overview of the Nicodemus Society, which is a ministry that I have founded to try to identify like-minded Seventh-day Adventists who have a heart burden for the W3 segment. So that's, that's an overview of the Nicodemus Society. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a mission field that I feel very deeply and passionately about. We're just getting started. Some of the things that we're doing is we're thinking about doing in an executive education style program on how to witness to W3s. Uh, but there are a lot of directions that we're, we're thinking about, brainstorming about. I think at this point, what I would ask is if any of you have found this to be interesting and useful and you'd like to stay informed on how things develop, I know those clipboards went around, but to make sure that you just sign up 
so that we can email you and inform you as we develop different components of this ministry. And with that, I just want to wrap up by summarizing. Start by evaluating your own heart conversion and to get off the fence. Get off the fence. And I hope you get off the fence on the side of belief and confidence in Christ. Because I believe that when you study it out, it's the only rational thing to choose. Second, I would say walk with the Lord and let Him transform you so that you can be a living epistle. Engage in these spiritual conversations. And then again, sign up either on these clipboards or if you want to learn more, you can go to our website, which is nicodemussociety.org. nicodemussociety.org. And we have the same sign-up form on our website as well. And so with that, you've been great. You've been very patient. Um, I know it's, it's late and we've been going for some time. If anyone has any more questions, I'd be happy to take them uh, for a few more minutes. Otherwise, we can close with prayer and adjourn. So does anyone have any questions? Yes, sir. Sure. Well, I think uh, there are a lot of different components to that question. It's a very good one. What I'll say briefly right now is that you need to find a place to integrate all the different components in a way that works for you. So, for example, um, when I was in business school, the, the two traditional tracks coming out of business school would be are you going to be a consultant or an investment banker? I mean, of course, there's more than that, but those are the stereotypical tracks. Well, investment bankers work over 100 hours per week. That's just what they do. And you can't work 100 hours per week and avoid working on the Sabbath. I mean, maybe someone's figured out how to do that, but it's very difficult. And so I never wanted to be an investment banker. That's just not something I wanted to do. So I went into consulting where they only work 70 hours per week, which actually makes a difference. But the point is, we have to find a situation that allows us to be integrative in both our faith and our professional life. There could be other reasons. It, it could be that maybe you're in a situation where you're just not very well suited for that discipline. And it's a struggle. Maybe it's a more of a struggle for you in that discipline than for someone else who has more aptitude for that discipline. I mean, that's a tough conversation to have with yourself. But you might have to say, um, you know, maybe I should do something else over here that I'm better at, maybe I have more background, more, more aptitude for. And that will help me to be more effective and efficient there so that I can be more integrated with all the other aspects of my life. So there's a lot of ways to solve that problem, but it is, it's kind of a, a, an optimization problem that you have to fit the puzzle together. Thank you for that question. Yes, yes sir, in the back.
We'll go to him next. Thank you. Yes. I, I, I'm not, I don't know. There probably is, but um, I, the way I learned this was through the school of hard knocks. Um, trial and error guided by the Holy Spirit. And um, one, one uh, I mean, it's just kind of a catchy phrase, but one thing I think about sometimes is what is your question to answer ratio? Your question to answer ratio. In other words, for, for every answer you're giving, how many questions are you giving? And your ratio should be much, very tilted in the favor of the number of questions you're asking. You should ask, I don't know, for every one answer you give, try to ask 10 questions. Something like that. But just keeping that in mind and developing a self-awareness about that, I think is the first part of it. Maybe most of it. Just asking questions. But th thank you for that observation, because that, that is at the heart of how you have these spiritual conversations. Yes, sir? Would you still want to the same career path that you have taken? Uh, if you experienced a conversion experience earlier in your life, maybe early 20s? Sure. Um, that's a hard question uh, for the obvious reasons. If I were a politician, I would say, I don't deal with hypotheticals. <laughs> but what I will say is this. I believe, and again, one of the nice things about being a, a layman is that I can say what I think, and because no one else is paying me. And what I will say is this: I believe that there is a uh, an imbalance, there's a skew in our denomination in terms of career choice. I think that, and we all know that, right? We all know what that is. And there's no disrespect to those career choices. I mean, healthcare, ministry, education, those are all very worthy endeavors. And I should say, perhaps, that they can be pursued in a very worthy way. Not that everyone who does them does it that way, but they're very worthy endeavors. But what happens is that we lack, therefore, the talent and the background and skill set and capabilities in these other areas like business, for example. Now, I don't know numerically how that works, but I haven't found too many people in our church who have a similar background to what I do. Um, a few, but not as many as I think we could use. Um, so I, I think that I would encourage anybody, if you have an interest in a different career path than some of the traditional ones, I would encourage you to pursue them if... And here's the caveat, if you can approach them from a missionary mindset. If you can approach them from a missionary mindset. If you can't, if you're not in that place, I'd say don't do those. But if you can, I would highly encourage you. By the way, corporate America is a very Sabbath-friendly place. You have to pick your company. You have to pick your spot. You have to pick your functional area. But I've never had Sabbath issues um, in corporate America. And there are a couple reasons for that. One is, 
Um, because there's so much diversity, you can pick. So I just gave that investment banking example. Well, no, I did not go and become an investment banker because I think it might be almost impossible. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it might be almost impossible to observe the Sabbath faithfully as an investment banker. Part of the reason why I left the cello as a profession is because it was just so hard to uh, navigate Sabbath issues as an orchestral performer. Now, you could be a teacher or a professor, so there are other methods, but you have to pick your spots. Um, but I've, I've found corporate America to be very Sabbath accommodating. And that's the second part about it is the second most politically correct institution in the United States is corporate America. The first is academia. And the thing is, is that if I tell someone, if I tell my boss or some supervisor at work, um, hey, I can't do that because um, you know, I observe the Sabbath and this would conflict with that, they're like, no problem. They won't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I find that with um, Sabbath keepers or aspiring Sabbath keepers, who have trouble with Sabbath in the workplace, and I mean managerial type of roles, not frontline retail or, or something like that. I think that's a little bit of a different story. But when you're in a managerial role and you really struggle with Sabbath keeping, it's either because you're in the wrong company or the wrong job, or it's because you're frankly just not bold enough to just say, hey, you know. I mean, there are people at work who will say, you know what, I can't make that meeting because I have to pick up my, I have to go to my son's um, Little League game. And no one blinks twice at them. Now, there are companies and industries where that would be a problem. But you can pick your spot. And, um, and so, I don't know how to answer your question as far as would I do something different. But what, what I will say is, if any of you are interested in other things, as long as you approach it from a missionary spirit, I would really encourage you to do that. We need a diversity of backgrounds and skills and capabilities in our church. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, let's wrap it up with a word of prayer and we'll uh, adjourn. Lord God, our Father, you're so good to us. You're so good to us in that you have given us a role to play in the plan of salvation. And yet, Lord, it has been difficult for many of us myself included. Lord, you've only been teaching me how to do this over the last few years. And, and now, Lord, by your grace, by the Holy Spirit, it is something that is a joy and is natural to do. And Lord, that is my prayer for each and every person here, that they too would be able to bring their faith together with the rest of their lives in a way that brings them heart conversion, that they would walk with you, that they would live a more Christ-like life, which would attract spiritual interests, some of which who become Bible studies, and then converts, which deepens their own heart conversion. Lord, I pray that we might all be on this virtuous cycle, that it would, and that we would see the fruit of that labor, not just now, but especially into eternity. We pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.